Great, thank you, Anthony. You're first. <laughs> yeah, great. Thank you, Sarah, and thank you everyone for joining us on what is a really important topic. Uh, basically, getting more people home in one piece uh, and avoiding serious injury and fatality. So, we're going to go through some questions with Amy and Warren, and and they're going to take two very different lenses on a on a really important uh, topic. So, Amy very much coming from the psychology angle, and and Warren coming from that operational leadership HR management angle as well. So it provides a, provides a unique perspective on, on a uh, very important topic. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Centus and, and maybe um, would like to be, we're an organisation pr- primarily made up of uh, psychologists uh, who use psychology and neuroscience to help organisations shift safety culture and improve safety outcomes. Uh, so we've been around for... I think it's uh, 20 years next year, uh, and we work heavily in the uh, heavy industry space. Anywhere where you've got a potential to seriously injure or harm someone, you'll find us there supporting organisations to improve their safety culture. So a little bit about what we're going to cover today, uh, a short agenda. So firstly, we want to learn about the under, uh, learn about what is underreporting and what are the key drivers of that. And we've got a really interesting study that we've been able to pull uh, out of our database of existing uh, partners to be able to provide you with the insights about what those many, many uh, partners have experienced as the drivers of underreporting. We're going to secondly look at the importance of accurately identifying potential and serious injury and fatality events. And this is actually uh, a bit of a trickier one than some people may, may think. So it's a really interesting one to dig in a little bit deeper and have a think about. Third, we're going to look, learn about the importance of weak signals to future serious events. So this actually comes down to are we getting the best bang for buck out of our, our near-miss reporting, our incident reporting to inform preventative actions into the future. And lastly, we're going to look at some practical ideas and strategies you can consider to change the way your organisation responds to incident reports. So without further ado, we will, uh, we're, going to, we're going to launch into... Uh, into underreporting in just a moment. But just to set the scene of, of underreporting, uh, there'll be a fact sheet that we'll send out later. But what we actually found when it came to serious incidents is that about 45% of them fly under the radar. So of all the incidents that occur across your site, 40, uh, that are serious, so by serious we're talking about have the potential for serious injury or fatality, our data is showing us that about 45% of those aren't recognised and identified and discussed in any meaningful way. Terrifying, right? The second real finding that we found is that about 29% of incidents attract unnecessary effort. So what that means is that you'll potentially get lower level incidents. By lower level, we're talking about lower potential outcome incidents attracting a whole lot of organisational attention, a whole lot of organisational focus um, and, and you've got all these serious ones that are flying under the radar. So it's a big challenge for many organisations to get a grip of and tackle. But before we get there, we want to talk firstly about the value, the importance of getting the right data and as much good data as we can. So we're going to kick off by looking at this idea of underreporting. So, Amy, when we talk about underreporting, what is it and why is it so important? Yeah, thanks, Ant. And hello to everyone on the call today or watching the video later on. Uh, Underreporting is sort of what you might um, assume it to be. It's the idea that incidents are not being reported. So this could be hazards, uh, near misses, minor incidents, major incidents um, that are not going into our reporting system. 
And so when we assess this through any of our research projects or um, diagnostic tools, we're interested in asking people about the number of incidents uh, that they personally have experienced over the last 12 months, and then the number of incidents that they, of those that they have reported, and then we look for the difference there. Uh, so a side issue that's related to that is um, the, the idea of inaccurate reporting. So underreporting means that incidents are not being reported at all, but we also know there's a, an associated issue around the accuracy of the reporting that's going on. And a lot of the issues that contribute to underreporting um, being a problem in organisations also contribute to inaccurate incident reports as well. Great. Uh, and Warren, why is underreporting an, an important topic for us to be talking about today? Well, I, I, a great question and, and hello everyone um, and thanks for having me on, Anthony. This is a, this is a great session to be part of. Um, I think, look, the primary reason why underreporting is important to us is that as an issue is that if we're going to learn um, what we need to learn about why things go wrong, if, you're actually, if you don't have the information in front of you, it's going to be very, very hard to draw accurate and real conclusions about what do we need to do to fix those issues in future. That's probably the primary reason, I think, Anthony. Great. Well, a little bit of a poll. Uh, we'd like to, love to get a bit of a pulse check from our audience throughout these webinars. What we'd love to hear from you is to what extent are incidents and near misses going underreported from your from your gut feel, or you might actually have data to support this perspective, but um, do you think that, they're, that you're getting all the data, they're not at all, little, very little, somewhat to a great extent? So uh, to what extent are incidents and near misses going underreported? So just while we're collecting that data um, from the audience, Amy, from the research that you've done, what are you finding are the key drivers of underreporting? What why is it that we're not getting all the data that we could be getting? So so why is it occurring? Yeah, uh, the main um, reasons that we often look at um, and often get told when we're we're out talking to clients in organisations, firstly, is that people have fixed it themselves. So that's the most common reason that we get. They've they've noticed a problem and they've addressed it, so they didn't bother reporting it. Uh, the other reasons that we see come through are uh, difficulty with the reporting system or the structure. Uh, it's time consuming or it's difficult or they don't know how to report. Um, it could also be the case um, that there's a, a lack of belief or confidence that something's going to happen after they report it. So that might be where you hear people say, I've reported things before nothing changed, I'm not going to bother. And so there's that apathy that's been building up over time, which is where we're starting to get into that more serious problematic space. And then finally is an, avoid, an avoidance, uh, a sense of fear or blame that might be associated with um, reporting. And so they're avoiding it on purpose. And that's, that's, again, at that much more serious end of things. Great, thank you. Uh, and we've just had the poll results come back while you've been talking, Amy. So uh, according to the current audience that we've got, uh, underreporting is a serious opportunity area for improvement with the majority of, of viewers that we've got along today anyway. So you've got 38% uh, of people saying it's an issue to a great extent, 55% uh, saying it's somewhat of an issue, 7% uh, uh, saying very little, and no one here is saying it's not an issue at all. So that's interesting. What I'd be curious to hear from the group if, uh, as we go through over the next couple of slides is 
how do the Amy's and how does the re, uh, findings from Amy's research reflect your own experience of the drivers of underreporting? Is there anything additional to that um, that you're seeing pop up as drivers of underreporting in your organisation? Uh, if if there is, chuck it in the chat. Or alternatively, there might be something that particularly resonated with what Amy shared. We'd love to hear from you in the chat also. So we've had a chat about the uh, why underreporting occurs. What we want to have a chat about now is a little bit about where the focus on safety metrics comes from. You know, so we're, we're looking to collect data um, from our people to inform uh, making decisions around safety. Now, a lot of that, that the, the uh, data that we collect is driven by what the board is requesting to see and hear about. So before we jump in, we explore this a little bit further with, with Warren, we'd love you to jump on another poll. And just give us a little bit of feedback about what sort of incident data gets the most attention from your board. Is it lag indicator information such as LTIR and all injury frequency rate? Is it lead indicator info such as uh, near miss and hazard reporting? Uh, is there a big focus on serious injury potential data? Is it data around the precursors to SIF incidents? So are they getting in behind it and going, all right, well, we had a uh, a big serious injury and fatality potential incident. We want to know what the drivers are behind that. Um, or are they looking at data around the patterns that indicate system failure? So if you, for those of you who've got some exposure to the board or, or feed into that board reporting, what, is, what are the big conversations that you're hearing being had at the board level around your incident data? Now, why is it important, Warren, for us to be talking about uh, this idea of incident data at a board level? Oh, look, it's, uh, it's, it's actually very critical for board members in this day and age, as most of the guys, people on the call would, would realise, um, board members and executives, um, they're, they're on the hook in a way that they've never been in past decades. You know, for a responsibility to be actively seeking information about how well risk is being managed, not just accept data on face value, but actually be interrogating it. Um, and really being able to tease, you know, tease apart the layers of, you know, typical sort of corporate obscurity that happens with, you know, with these, this kind of information, because this information is not good news. You know, when an incident happens, or we're talking about an IFR rate, or something serious has happened, it's usually not good news. Um, so it tends to get a lot of attention. Um, unfortunately, it's mostly focused at a board member level on outcomes. Um, and the, the problem for most directors um, and executives is that they, they're kind of driven from a historical perspective, almost from you know, throughout their career. They're very focused on delivering on outcomes. They do less in the safety space around the contributors to those outcomes. In other words, all of the lead, the lead signals or the weak signals to those events happening eventually. They're mm -hmm. far better off getting educated around the need for better metrics, better lead metrics. Um, that, that's my opinion. And I think most, most people probably agree with that these days. Yeah, so, um, so there's a big focus on outcomes. Uh, and outcomes would typically point to things like those lost time injury frequency rates and all injury frequency rates that you spoke about. Amy, from a cultural standpoint, if they're the key questions that are being asked by the board, um, they're asking for that sort of data, what are the potential cultural ramifications on under-reporting and, and other incident reporting uh, at a operational level, culturally yep. speaking? Yep, really, really good point. Thanks, Ant. Um, I think from, you know, the way Warren's described that, it flows down then through the organisation, the messages that are being sent through senior leadership down 
right to supervisor and frontline worker level is that this is our focus. This is what matters. These, these sort of um, lag indicators, your LTIs, and therefore that's what we care about. And that's a really big shift in the way safety is valued by the organisation. And like Warren was talking about, looking at those things that can predict and improve safety into the future, if that's the message that's coming down from senior management and from your board level, that creates a very different sense of, of what's important to me and the way I do my work. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting run, right? And we can see the data that's come through on the screen, a heavy skew towards lag indicator uh, information up the top there, but really also quite refreshing to see some focus on lead indicated data at the board. So we're starting to see that bubble up uh, and also uh, some good people getting in and looking at, well, what are the patterns that indicated system failure? That's excellent. They're good questions to be asking, but unfortunately not a lot of data around the precursor SIF event. So, so maybe some opportunity there. Certainly from, from our um, worker experience perspective, the way this is often experienced and translated from the conversations that I've been involved in is, well, management and senior management, even the board, um, they only care when things go wrong with safety. So I can work safely 99.9% .9 of the time. You know, I can even be quite proactive and engaged in safety. I hear nothing, not boo uh, from a grasshopper. But if something goes wrong, well, there's an incident investigation, I'm called into a meeting, and even if it isn't done, uh, that process isn't completed with a punitive mindset by that organisation, it's still experienced that way, often uh, often by that worker, because they're the ones that are in the hot seat and having to get involved in all these conversations. So the ripple effect can, be, can obviously be quite significant. Mm. So if we have a look at those, those metrics, and we've sort of touched on that a bit, with that all injury frequency rate, Warren, um, uh, yeah, so the, the cascading effect on that SIF prevention uh, of that really lag indicator focus, how do you see that, that playing out? Well, what, what you, yeah, Amy and I both know that, um, you know, if you have an excessive focus on lag indicators, and I think it's very encouraging to see that quite a number of people on, on this on, on this webinar you know, in the audience are experiencing a different kind of evolution toward lead metrics. Um, even if it's only modest, it's actually happening, which is fantastic. But the, you know, the, the problem that we have with lag metrics is uh, it tends to flow down in the form of targets. Um, and it also tends to flow down you know, into a, almost a cultural response to it tends to lead to some hiding of information. This is where a lot of you know, the, the stuff that Amy talked about early on, you know, this is a really important facet of underreporting is what happens when I do report this incident and we're sitting on the red line you know, of our LTIFR target objective. Um, you know, do I want to be the person that's responsible for actually pushing this over the, you know, over the, over the target you know, in a negative way? And I mm -hmm. think that's, that, has a, uh, that has an impact on how supervisors and operational leaders respond to incidents in the workplace as well. Um, they, they can respond not in a very particularly constructive way, which then forces under-reporting you know, up even more. Yeah. Look, it's a, I think it's a really challenging um, change of frame for a lot of organisations, Warren, particularly the target setting point that you're making there. We've just uh, we've completed a few of these pieces of work with organisations recently, and they're doing some excellent work with SIF prevention. They're putting some really good proactive measures in there. But the default is to set a target, you know. So I want to set a target on, you know, we want to reduce SIF 
potential incidents by 20% over the next 12 months, for example. So, you know, and we're sort of saying, well, is that going to drive the right sorts of behaviours? But it is a real rewiring of the way we think about safety and learning from events um, that, that, that really does start right at the board and, and has a cascading yeah. effect. Yeah. On the, on the one hand, you want to make it positive and desirable to have near misses being reported and increase yeah. the number of near misses being reported as high as you possibly can. Conversely, a lot of near misses, a disproportionately large percentage of near misses are actually SIF potential, serious injury or fatality potential. Um, so that's good. And also it's bad because if somebody's setting a target on SIF or serious injury or fatality potential incidents and keeping trying to keep that number down, We've got two metrics actually bashing their heads against each other, which doesn't work very well. No, that's right. So we're, we're about to launch into another poll, and I've just had a, a question come through, what is SIF and what is SIF potential? So we might um, – I'll quickly give a summary of what, what that looks like. So when we talk about SIF, we're talking about serious injury and fatality, potential incidents. So, uh, so we're looking at the, not the actual outcome of the incident in every instance, but what was the potential outcome of the incident and differentiating that from incidents that didn't have the, say, the potential for a serious injury and, and, the fat and a fatality. So an example might be, um, just to give a little bit of context around this, you could have someone that steps out of a cab of a truck and rolls their ankle. Um, arguably, yeah, they might be off work for a few days um, and it, yeah, it's not a great incident. It's not something that you want it to occur, but the likelihood of someone you know, dying as a result of that or, or having a serious and permanent injury as a result of it is, is pretty, pretty low. You could actually have exactly the same outcome with someone falling off a ladder, say two or three metres down a, down a manhole or a, you know, a hole in the ground, and they might get exactly the same outcome actual outcome of an incident but the potential of that incident could have been again a serious injury or in fact a fatality and what we're seeing with a lot of organizations is there's a challenge with differentiating between actual outcomes and the potential outcomes and therefore that skews the way incidents are reviewed and assessed within an organization so hopefully that clarifies um, for some of our listeners why we're focusing on on serious injury and fatality prevention so so closely in this particular um, webinar. Anything you wanted to add on that, Warren, Amy? Have I done an okay job of, of summarising Great that? job. All right, thank you. I passed. So what we might do is a quick poll again. What I'm really curious to hear from uh, the people on the call is how well does your organisation, from, from what you know, categorise uh, incidents as serious injury and fatality potential versus versus minor, not serious injury and fatality prevention. So is your organisation actually going and looking at your incident data and your misreporting data that's coming through and projecting forward the potential of those outcomes? Um, so if you're not doing that, you'd probably say very poor. Through to, if you're doing it and, and discussing it quite intensely, you'd, you'd be coming through it, through it excellent. So as we're sort of um, waiting for those results to come through, Warren, I shared a stat earlier on around 45% of serious incidents flying under the radar and 29% of incidents attracting sort of undue attention. Why do you think that dynamic is playing out within a lot of organisations? 
Well, there's a, it's, it's a really important question because um, most organisations that, that you know, we work with, um, they have some sort of categorisation structure. Um, you know, it's risk matrix driven or it's, or it's actually sim- simply a you know, stratified you know, kind of risk categorisation um, because they are interested in driving the right kinds of incidents into kind of deep dive investigations and not mm-hmm. wasting too much time on, you know, things that really weren't, you know, probably unfortunate, but not serious. Um, so I think most organisations, even those that aren't that mature, have some form of categorisation. The problem is who is performing the categorisation when that happens? Um, and what's their understanding about serious potential? Um, like, does everybody have the same calibrated reaction you know, to, to looking at the same incident? I've got to tell you, almost always no. Um, so it's actually quite a challenge to get accurate categorisation of incidents um, for a range of reasons. And there's influences coming from everywhere, culturally, um, you know, do I want this? Do I want this to get attention? Uh, do I want actually to have really serious questions asked about this incident that happened in my patch? You know, and so on and so forth. Uh, so there's a range of reasons why uh, it's tricky to get a really consistent, like learning-based approach to this. It is. It is. So thank you, Warren. I will, we'll bring up those stats in just a moment because there's a really interesting graph that looks at the percentage of um, miscategorization that occurs. So we might close out this panel, Sarah, just to see how our audience is going with this particular question. So, okay, bit of a spread across the group. We've got uh, 2% or one person saying they're doing a great job of it, which is fantastic to see. Got uh, uh, 27% saying above average, 31% saying average, uh, 25% saying below average and 15% saying very poor. So that is pretty reflective of what we're seeing, again, across industry, isn't it, Warren and Amy? Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So th- thank you, everyone, for giving those results. That's been uh, really useful. So, Warren, back to you. So we spoke about um, those incidents flying under the radar. Can you put a little bit more meat on the bones as to how you, with sure. that right-hand table, as to how you actually see this playing out? Yes, one thing I should say right up front, and it might not be common a common theme amongst all of our audience members, but you know we, we tend to look at we look at near misses. We give near misses as much credence, um, you know, as an actual recordable incident that involves medical treatment, um, you know, lost time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, and the reason for that is is that you're going to if anybody goes to the trouble of reporting a near miss in your organisation. It probably was something that sort of led to a little bit of heart and mouth. Um, and if you feel that you're heart in your mouth when it comes to an event like that, where we go, phew, that was lucky, uh, like nothing bad happened, um, it probably, or it was very likely to have actually be, been a candidate for a SIF potential incident. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something that not all organisations do. They, they tend to look at their recordables. Um, and so when, when we gather up incidents from organisations to analyse, like you know, the, the result of, or part of the result of the analysis sitting in front of you for one organisation, um, we gather near misses as much as incidents. We, and we want to see those as well. In this case, what's interesting here is about 300 incidents in this data set on the right-hand side. And... Um, the things in green, in the green bars, they're the things that were fairly accurately classified. You know, those incidents that were of negligible risk, 131 of them, yep, absolutely spot on, we would agree. There were five, however, in that top category, which is actually the lowest risk category, 
that we said, actually, no, there's actually serious SIF potential here in those incidents. There's five incidents that have absolutely, completely flown out under the radar because they weren't even considered to be important enough to do an incident investigation. Um, I'd say the 12 and the 16 in the minor and the moderate categories, which are still considered to be relatively manageable risk, were also SIF potential. So we've got 28, 33 incidents there that have actually effectively not achieved any, anything like the attention they probably should have got. Mm-hmm. Conversely, amongst those major and catastrophics, interesting, there was actually one catastrophic event that was clearly badly categorised because it really shouldn't have been in that category at all. But eight of them didn't need to be either in the major category. Um, they really didn't have any potential for serious outcome. And this is quite common. This, this is not an unusual situation. We've done this work over and over again with a number of fairly mature safety culture uh, organisations, um, and this is actually fairly normal. It's a fairly standard outcome when we when it comes to assessing SIF potential yes versus SIF potential no across their incident database. Yeah, great. So we're not trying to diminish in this conversation the importance of those lower-level incidents like the sprains and strains and mus- musculoskeletal issues. They are really important. Uh, to address and as a whole new webinar uh, to have a conversation about that on another day. But what we are suggesting through this data is that we are missing an opportunity to make sure the big things are managed well. Uh, you know, the big life-changing events, the big events that, you know, have the potential to cause huge organisational and operational disruption um, where, you know, are we putting the appropriate amount of focus on managing those, and this data is, is suggesting absolutely not. Um, Anthony, can I, just, uh, can I just take one second to respond to an excellent question that Carolyn, or a point that Carolyn just made uh, in our audience? Um, I know obviously we don't want to jump around too much on mm-hmm. responding to questions, but I thought it was no, a really important question. What constitutes a serious injury or fatality potential situation um, you know, and people ask, you know, but, but if, I, if, if I have, how many things have to change for it to be considered serious injury or fatality situation? And we have a fairly tight, rigorous set of rules that allows us to be very consistent in the approach to assessing SIF. One of them is we only need one if. One if, one thing needs to change for it to turn into a serious injury or fatality actual situation, then that fits the category of SIF incident. If it's two or three things, we're starting to draw a very long bow here. Mm-hmm. You could you could plow almost all your incidents into that category. <laughs> so we have, it, it, the, the importance there is in actually having a set of rules which allows us to be consistent in that in that categorisation process. Um, and thanks, Carolyn, for prompting that. Good, good pick up, Carolyn, and thank Warren, thanks, Warren, for that that um, clarification. So, uh, Warren. We'd love to hear a bit about um, how this inverted triangle plays out in regards to understanding SIF potential. Sure. Um, And uh, I've got to congratulate the person who did this graphic. It's actually the best uh, representation of how serious injury and fatality uh, potential emerges over time. Um, You know, what we tend to focus on, of course, are the things down the bottom of this triangle because they're very much in our face you know, those serious injuries and fatalities. Um, We certainly pay attention to minor injuries. Um, There's an emerging focus on near misses, obviously. Um, Many organisations are still struggling to try and get a good solid body of near misses being reported. 
mainly because it's, it's hard for frontline workers to be bothered to do so because nothing bad happened. Um, and of course, hazards, um, yeah, hazard reporting is a bit up and down depending upon, you know, organisations, sectors. Um, but the fundamental issue here that we're trying to represent is that it doesn't matter where you look on that uh, from, from top to bottom. It's that one, that 20% or so, or one in five of each of those events up and down that, uh, that model that are likely to have SIF potential residing in them. We know that, um, you know, back in the old days, you know, we thought that if you, if you reduced the bottom of the triangle, or the bottom of the triangle in the old days, because it was inverted from this, if we reduced our minor injuries, we would proportionately reduce our serious injuries. Mm-hmm. And if we, if we proportionately reduced our serious injuries, we would also like, lessen the likelihood of fatality. The problem with serious injury or fatality of potential incidents is they don't function the same way as your slip, trip, fall. Uh, you know, uh, skeletal type incidents. They have a very particular set of precursors um, that tend to drive them. And it's about one in five we find, you know, typically it could be 15%, could be 20, could be 22. Um, it tends to vary industry to industry and organisation to organisation. But you can bet your bottom dollar that you've got at least one in seven, one in six, possibly in one in five incidents that have got that fifth potential sitting within them. Mm. The importance of this diagram is showing you that there's certain hazards when they're reported that are really important indicators, they're lead indicators that SIF potential is starting to increase. Even if you haven't had an incident happen in a particular risk category, if there are hazards associated with that, um, it's really important to pay attention to that data uh, and analyse that data looking for those weak signals to bad events down the track. Excellent. So... Warren, if I was to put my spin on that and, and summarise it, what I'm hearing is that every near miss or incident, so every bit of data that's categorised along this um, particular graphic provides a potential for learning. So if we put a SIF lens on this, we can pick out the ones that have the SIF potential and provides an opportunity for learning. Then once we've got those identified, then the opportunity is to aggregate that data and look at the weak signals that are the that are the precursors to those potential events occurring and that becomes the focus to put preventative actions into place is that have i summarized yeah absolutely because every every sif in every sif incident or near miss there's going to be a breakdown in control um yeah and so for some of the people in the audience um who have a very strong sort of critical risk um, management uh experience and, and knowledge you know, uh, critical controls are the key thing here that we're trying to understand where are they not being implemented properly in the business? You know? yep. And how is that driving risk? Because people every day will be performing work. Going back to Amy's comment earlier on, mm-hmm. people will be performing work every day, not necessarily perfectly within specification, yep. you know, not completely aligned with rules. And that's because we can't set every worker up for 100% success no matter how much our critical risk management framework and all of our procedural documentation, you know, is uh, we make an attempt to make that perfect, but it can't fit every operating situation perfectly. Uh, so people have to take some, like they have to express some creativity in terms of how they actually perform work. It's just how much are they doing that? Yeah, and how, right. how many of those critical controls really aren't being implemented properly? Uh, and that's, that sits in that hazard space because a critical control that's, that's not really being implemented um, is really a hazardous situation waiting, you know, to become something worse. Yeah. 
I guess on this concept of reporting and, and under-reporting and getting this data to be able to, to do something meaningful with it, um, Brendan has lobbed in a, a bit of a virtual hand. Brendan Barnes has launched in a bit of a virtual hand grenade, which is probably worth just tapping in and offering a perspective on anyways. He said, are you saying that having a target of zero recordable injuries for a year will have a negative effect on safety? So I don't know if anyone here wants to touch touch that that. That question, Amy or, or Warren? It's a, it's a big one, but I'll let Amy have a go first because uh, <laughs> I haven't let her talk for a bit. <laughs> Sorry, Amy. It's all good. It's all good. I'll take that one. Um, and then you can jump in and add, add your spin to Warren. That would be really helpful. Um, that's, that's not what we're trying to say at all, Brendan. Um, I think what we're trying to indicate is that when you've got that um, target of zero incidents or recordable injuries, as a KPI, as something that you're, you're trying to achieve, and if you don't achieve it, there are problems, that's when people start to try and hide things. Having um, a zero injuries or zero incidents as a goal, as something that you'd like to work towards and, and identify all those hazards and near misses and weak signals as being your important pathway to preventing future incidents, and that being your goal, um, that helps send a very different message to bloody hell, you've, you've wrecked our numbers for the year, you know, like that's, that's where you start to have um, problems. So I think that's, that's what we're trying to, to get at. So Warren, it's, a di have... it's a difference between a goal, oh, sorry, yes. a, a KPI, KPI and a vision maybe. Yes, uh, exactly. And I think, yeah, I think that's where Zero Harm has gone awry in a lot of different organisations is what was it originally put out as a mm. supposedly an inspiring vision turned into a KPI and then there were commercial metrics and different things tied to that, which really um, yeah, drove some some not great behaviours around safety. Warren, any additions? To yeah, I, look, I think, look, both of you have just articulated that beautifully. I would just say that, um, you know, it, what it envisages, of course, is a 100% reliable operation. Um, in other words, complete predictability and complete reliability. Human beings aren't like that. Nor our operations in a you know in a socio-technical you know context, a very complex one that we have in, in workplaces in this day and age. It it isn't like it isn't sensible to be imagining that we can actually be one hundred percent reliable. We can work toward that goal exactly as you just said, and uh, the you know the, the working toward it as a vision in improving reliability, um, you know, reducing you know uh, waste, reducing um, rework. You know, all of those good, you know, indicators that are important, you know, towards sort of maximising production and also maximising safety for our people, they're all really useful. But um, we have to acknowledge the fact that, you know, this notion of zero, not that useful. And in fact, many, many papers have been written on it by people who are much smarter than, you know, me, certainly, um, about the folly of zero as an objective of any kind. Yeah. yeah. Well, it actually feeds nicely into the next question we've got. Um, and that is, and we'll, we'll chuck it to you, Amy, first, if that's okay. What are the features of an organisation with a strong reporting culture? So we've just spoken about the importance of getting that data. What are you seeing organisations that do it well? Yeah, we tend to see that they've got that slightly more mature safety culture in general, which means that they've got strong safety leadership supporting that culture. And that also then reflects in the way people feel at work. So they've got a higher degree of trust in their leaders and in their organisation, which um, then deals with, um, relates to an increase in psychological safety, 
which connects really nicely to quite a number of the comments that have come through in the chat around uh, that avoidance, that loss of job sort of fear that might be associated with reporting. So that's indicating that people are not feeling psychologically safe in their workplace. Um, so that's another really important factor at improving that reporting that's going on in an organisation. And the last factor that you often see is that strong emphasis on learning. So the, the, the focus on getting the most out of those instant reports that focus on feeding back the information on achieving that change. Mm. Excellent. And, and Warren, anything to add from your perspective? Oh, look, I, um, that was captured really well, Amy. I think I'd only add that I think leaders, uh, leaders are really important element to this in terms of their behaviour and attitude, you know, toward apparent failure. Because in fact, when, you know, when things don't go right, we can have a view about it as being a failure um, or we can have a view about it as being a learning opportunity um, and just be a little more mature in our response to it. Now, you know, leadership um, mindset um, and how, how they communicate around this. Um, and of course, that's driven somewhat by what happens above them. Mm. And the kinds of metrics that the board and the executive are hanging their hat on and the targets they're set on. That's why it's so critical that the, the very top are highly educated about the impact of what they ask for and what they place focus and attention on. Um, because as it flows down, you know, you know that whole idea of learning organisation, it can get really badly punctured um, very, very quickly by uh, a well-meaning but poorly designed you know, kind of set of metrics or target focus, et cetera. Yeah. So, so what I'm hearing is it's important to collect data and approach it with a, with a, from a basis of curiosity and, and seeking to understand and then le sharing learnings uh, across the organisation. So getting the right sort of information, you know, and it is really important. So what, what's, what does the right information typically look like in a really quick summary, Warren? What are you looking for? Well, on, the, on this dashboard, this is just a sample dashboard, it's actually um, um, a real anonymized client's um, uh, organization's data, um, but you can see there, there's a, you, know, you, probably, you probably can't see, but the, that whole issue about categorization of incidents and how, uh, how much integrity that has is a really important thing for people to be understanding and tracking and monitoring. Uh, whether or not controls are, are being implemented um, in the field effectively and exactly as they should be. And if they're not, were they even enabled properly in the first place? You know, like are the harnesses we give people to work at height actually suitable for, you know, to be operating with? Um, you know, are, are, the, are the anchor points there uh, or do they have to actually take shortcuts to get the job done? Mm -hmm. um, we're also interested in, in within each risk category uh, and tracking whether or not you know, the, the incidents in particular risk categories are increasing or going backwards. Um, and obviously, we want them to be going backwards. But if they're going up, we want to find out where are the control breakdowns that are actually causing that. Um, so obviously, this does rely heavily on a solid and consistent and thorough investigation process on the incidents that really matter. Um, and, that's the, and that's another issue we find with many organisations. They struggle with consistency and thoroughness of investigation you know mm -hmm. on the one hand i see a wonderful icam investigation that's got tremendous extraction of business intelligence you know for, for the business to go straight straight ahead and actually do something about that particular risk or exposure and in other cases we see five words you know in an instant report 
that doesn't really yeah. play anything. And in fact, it had serious injury or fatality potential. So there's a, we also want to know when these incidents happen. When are they most likely to happen in a 24-hour cycle um, or over a month-to-month cycle? Um, uh, so there's a lot of data that can be extracted and, and positioned in a very simple one-slide dashboard, um, which currently we don't see too many organisations have, but they would massively benefit from it. Look, the, the interesting thing is, and uh, Amy, get your thoughts on this, we've, we've been actually running a few processes where we look at uh, the organisational incident data and the weak signals of the precursors to incidents occurring. And we've also run safety climate surveys and, and cultural diagnostics with the same organisations. Mm-hmm. And when you actually look at the data, it uncovers and unravels, mm-hmm. we're seeing very similar themes come through in terms of opportunities for improvement and opportunities to create more positive uh, safety cultures and more positive safety experiences and organisations from a different from a different lens. Um, I mean, uh, how are you seeing that play out from uh, from your research lens? Yep, um, I think you're right. They they target the experience that's happening in the organisation through different lenses. And so the the climate assessment really lets you look at the perceptions of what's going on in the organisation, their sense of um, psychological safety, for instance, or their sense of management's commitment to safety, uh, their sense of peer support and the way the team might look out for each other. And then um, when those things tend to be Um, not going so well, that's where you're more likely to see more of these frequent incidents occurring. And you can also see in in the the factors that are contributing, those causal factors to the incidents, you're seeing those issues related to communication or supervision that are coming through in the incidents as well as what you've identified in the climate. So absolutely, there's there's a, it's a different way of looking at things um, and it gives you also, I think, an important lens through which to interpret your incident data. So if you know that um, you've got a high degree of underreporting, then the incident data is useful, but you also know there's stuff that you're missing. So there's things that, that you need to also be on the lookout for as well versus if you've got a very low level of underreporting, you might be able to put a bit more trust into the incident reporting and the, the themes that are coming through there. So you want to be balancing those two um, and working on improving underreporting while also improving the outcomes of your incident investigations. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I agree. Uh, the, the other experience that I've had with running the t- looking at the two bits of data in parallel is, um, yeah, it's one thing to say that supervision is a challenge uh, and it's come out in, in the safety climate or, or safety culture data that we've uh, gathered. But if you then say, well, it's a real issue experienced by X percent of the workforce and it's also been a weak signal for X amount of uh, high potential incidents that have occurred on site. Yeah, the message that it sends in terms of that's an important area of focus really hits executives and boards in between the eyes and it's very, very difficult to deny as, a, as an opportunity area. So if you are having challenges getting a grip on how do we get a change or if you find that your safety performance is plateauing, we'd be really encouraging you to get good data as a way of, of setting your strategy and setting your focus, which comes to probably our, our, our final, our, uh, one of our final slides before we're going to go into some questions um, Amy and Warren, and Amy, we'll, we'll start with you. Uh, what's one recommendation that you would make to improve our ability to learn from incidents? 
Yep. I think both of us are going to have trouble giving you just one. Okay. Um, I'll so, let you have two. I'll let you yeah, have cool. two. Thanks. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, as a quick summary, moving uh, reporting from being seen as a chore to being seen as something useful. Um, and so the way that you can do that is through improving the way leaders are responding to incidents. Um, and that can be across your organisation from the very top right through to frontline supervision. Um, how are they approaching incidents? How are they talking about reporting? Are they approaching it with a sense of curiosity? Are they talking about the importance of getting things in? Um, is the organisation listening to their feedback on the things that are going on? So I think really improving that system that exists around reporting, improving the way leaders are, are operating in that system would be a, a really good thing to do um, to improve the quality of the data that's coming in. Great. Thanks, Amy. And how about yourself, Warren? You put quite a few things there, Amy, into that. Yeah. <laughs> I would say, um, look, I, I'm, I'm probably not going to be particularly distant from what Amy's just said because uh, I think um, yeah, one of the key things here is for, for, for the audience members that are thinking on behalf of their own organisation, like, how do I make a difference in this space? Particularly if you agree with some of the perspectives that have come up, you know, through this presentation. Um, it, it's going to be important that you very carefully um, and very methodically look to educate or play a role in educating your organisation about the true dynamics of serious injury and fatality potential. Um, it's important that, that people have an understanding about that domain before you worry too much about you know, trying to change targets and, you know, mm -hmm. and changing metrics and so forth because, you know, selling new metrics, you know, we've seen organisations adapt to new metrics without really fully understanding why they did. Um, you know, they just bundled things up under, well, we need more lead indicators. Um, so, you know, let's, let's, get, let's get a paper written by somebody to tell us what lead indicators we need without really understanding the backdrop to that and then how you should manage that, um, you know, to actually reduce exposure because obviously in the end, the rubber hitting the road is reduced exposure in the field. Um, and I, I would say that, so there's an educative process that needs to happen. Um, then there's the process of actually starting to, to adapt um, whatever you've got currently, because no, no doubt in the field, there are people out there, supervisors, managers, uh, they may, you may even have a control verification process in place that gathers data on how aligned work is to how it's meant to be done. That's all fabulous information. If it's, if it's not being used, it's criminal. It's like this is a tremendous opportunity usually in hidden information in your business to actually start driving better quality learning, you know, from not even incidents, but just how work is being performed. I'd say that uh, your frontline and your operational leaders in particular, it's really important that they have a better understanding about how to engage the guys at the front, at the, at the coalface around the need for high quality, non-punitive information about when things aren't necessarily reliably working. You know, because unless we get, unless you get that information, you don't know what the lead indicators are to the mm -hmm. next event. And I think that's, uh, that's really important. Excellent. Better quality well, incident investigation is definitely definitely one as well, but that will be three, Anton. I'm probably stretching a friendship. Well, I think I think you might have slipped that one in anyway, Warren. But uh, thank you both. That, that's excellent. Look, so just to play back um, some of the high level things that that I've heard through the session. So, uh, where are some of the big opportunities we'd be encouraging organisations to think? Uh, one, understand why and how underreporting 
is occurring within your organization. Understanding those drivers of, of why you may or may not get in specific types of data is really crucial if you actually want to want to do it, uh, if you actually want to improve that level of reporting within the business. And, and just saying it's because they don't want to, I'd suggest is a is a cop-out. So I think understanding those drivers is, is crucial. The next one is thinking about, well, what are we rewarding and recognizing when it comes to, to safety? Um, and a lot of this will come down to how do we respond to reports of safety incidents and near misses? You know, and what's the proportion amount of focus we give, give to each of those, even with what do we report? So I, I'd, I'd challenge the importance of boards where it says, you know, we've, had, we've got an LTI rate of X. You know, are people going to go, oh, well, we're... LTI rate of X, I better not get hurt today so it doesn't get to Y, you know. So I think spending more time in understanding and valuing hazard reporting or near miss reporting and unpacking those incidents and, and looking at learning becomes a more respectful way of doing things. There are some really interesting reward and recognition schemes around. One of, the, one of our partners has got a really quite a, a radical approach to rewarding and recognising near misses. Uh, with a huge commercial investment in that. I think it's just worthwhile uh, and they're getting some excellent results, but there's also, there's a dark side to every uh, every um, reward and recognition system. You just need to be aware of, of how those things may play out. Uh, again, and I think Carolyn mentioned this, a lot of a lot of this feeds into adopting an attitude of continuous improvement and learning. If that's a fundamental place we're coming from, it, uh, that's a great place to start. And then finally, exploring a history of incidents through explorative in investigation. So, yeah, we spend so much time and effort collecting incident and safety data just to then focus on a number in a lot of cases. Spend some time, we challenge you, or we'll get some support to spend some time to get under the hood and actually look at, well, what does our, what's the story that our incident data is telling us and what do we do with that information to make the, the workplace safer? So... We are going to open up now to questions. Um, so uh, if anyone has any questions, feel free to either chuck them in the chat or maybe actually just to gather them a bit more cleanly if you can click in the Q&A section of the slides up the top and, and put those questions in. We'll respond to those. Just while, um, just while you're doing that, we've got a couple of um, opportunities for you to engage with centres further. The first one is if you're interested in unpacking your safety culture data, further or, or having a chat to Amy or one of the team about what it means to uh, you know, understand the drivers of your, your current safety culture, click yes and, and one of our team will get in touch with you or alternatively click no, of course. Yeah. Just keep an eye out for any questions that may come through. Um, I've also just put a little survey in the chat Feel free to fill that out if you like. We just um, like to find out what people want to hear about. Excellent. Thank you, Sarah. That's excellent. We might close that poll out if that's okay. And then the next poll is a, an opportunity we'd like to offer, offer our members to join our Safety Leadership Masterclass. So this is an online interactive 12-week course for safety, uh, safety culture change agents that we're opening up to people across across industry. So through this course, you'll get access to a number of uh, high-level speakers, uh, and I'll be in there as well from time to time, taking you through the psychology of being a safety culture change agent within your organisation. It's a great opportunity not only to learn from 
uh, those SMEs. But because it's a community-based format, there'll be people from dozens or hundreds of different organisations contributing their learnings and giving their input. So good opportunity to learn from what other businesses are doing as well and to create some some really good uh, networks in the process. So if you're interested in hearing more about that, click yes in the box. Okay, so we've had one question come through. Um, how would you suggest reporting on other lead indicators? So how would you suggest reporting on other lead indicators? I'm quite sure. So what what so I'm I'm, I'm thinking maybe what are some of the lead indicators would we suggest organizations focus on as opposed to focusing primarily on lag indicators like all injury or, or total recordables. So Warren, what would you be like in let's imagine organizations just starting off in this space, what would you be encouraging them to, to think about focusing on? Uh, Organisations that um, do have some sort of confirmation process of how work is being performed in the field and they actually get the data on it. Um, you know, we were seeing whether control, like those critical controls, the things that we actually know, the six or seven things that we know in a given task that's got high risk, where they're not being implemented properly, it's recording that data. That data is, a, is probably the best predictive lead indicator of eventually a problem happening down the track. Um, and you know the, the, uh, the linkage isn't necessarily one-to-one -one and uh, sometimes it takes time for an aggregation of control breakdowns to cause an incident, but inevitably it will happen. Um, and that, you know, that food chain of control breakdown, uh, you know, hazard, which obviously that creates, and then near miss. Near miss will be your next thing that occurs and eventually, you know, you have lots of near misses potentially and then eventually somebody will get hurt. Um, so. That's probably the best lead indicator. Um, but even near misses, near misses properly categorised and explored almost as if they're incidents, if they've got SIP potential. Um, you know, nothing bad happened really, but it could have. Um, and, you know, that, that is probably your next best lead indicator if you have a great near miss reporting culture. In fact, that's a reason to have a strong focus on building your near miss reporting culture. That's great. So, Amy, I know you've also been doing a lot of work on... Um, on creating positive safety metrics because so many so many safety metrics measure the absence of something and, and certainly I know the work that you've been doing is uh, been looking at well how do we measure the presence of of safety uh, as a, as opposed to focusing on those negative metrics all the time what are you starting to dig out through the data. Yeah, thanks, Ant. I, I think that's a, a different way of interpreting this question too, is that idea of um, if KPIs on our lag metrics sort of hide reporting, how can we use our lead indicators to improve the way things are done? So it means you can still report on rates of, of things, you can still have KPIs attached to them, but if it's a positive thing that you're working towards seeing more of, then those KPIs drive that behaviour perhaps in your team. So things that we see there include um, sort of senior leaders getting out, doing sort of site visits, talking to people, or increasing sort of leadership presence on site um, and having that as a lead indicator of those sort of number of safety communications that's going on. You can also look at um, people's confidence um, or belief in kind of their safety systems. You can look at how people are tracking in their trust or their psychological safety, so working at improving that. Um, you can look at different sort of training outcomes, training attendance, um, training sort of assessments and encouraging people to embed that training. 
Um, you can look at sort of safety leadership assessments around how confident people are with their safety leadership behaviours. So any sort of um, metric that makes sense within your organisation of things that you would like to see more of. Um, and so then you can encourage that through your lead indicators. Yeah. Okay, great, Amy. Thank you. I just had one more question come through and we're going to have to answer it in probably 60 seconds. Um, so I'll let you two fight over this one. So Mary's asked, is it good to correlate lead and lag indicators to your safety framework and standards, allowing you to have a better view? Is, and is it allowing you to have a better view of your organisation's risk? What an outstanding question. And, and Mary, you're absolutely spot on. Um, the, bit, the better you tie, you know, your measurements uh, and your metrics um, back to your actual critical risk management framework, which should have been driven out of known operational risks in your business, or properly analysed risks. I think you know, it all makes better sense to people. It makes sense to people at the front line. It makes sense to people who actually understand the operations at a leadership level. And it should make better sense to also to you know to to board and executives you know who are somewhat distant you know from the you know from the working interface. Yeah. Excellent. That's, great. That's a fantastic question. Yeah. Thank you, Mary, and, and thank you, Warren and Amy. I think we're just about out of time. I can see Sarah's point out a big hook to hook us off stage left. Um, so, Sarah, thank you to you and to Myosh for, for having us today. Thank you for joining us, Anthony, Warren and um, Amy. Uh, we there, I did put a link to that um, survey on that Academy website. There, at the bottom of the homepage, you'll see um, a census logo one of the experts, if you click on that, you can go to a web page that has all the webinars that they've done. So it's fantastic content. Um, uh, yeah, some great feedback coming in there. So thanks, everyone. And I uh, hope you all enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you all for joining us. Hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.